Yeah, God's doing a work among our, our students. 51 kids have stepped into relationship with Christ since Beach Week and is still happening. So excited about that. They've been baptized. I'm so glad you're in the house today because my message today may be the, the most important you'll ever hear. We're talking about Christianity 101. We're going through the Gospel of John, and we've come to John chapter 3, and it's the most famous chapter, you know, the most famous verse, John 3.16 is there. So for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about this little phrase that Jesus used, because I think it's one of the most misunderstood phrases uh, in America today, and that's the phrase, born again. It originated with Jesus, and most people think that being born again is something we do, but the truth is, it's not. It's something only God can do. And there are millions of churchgoers today around the globe that are not born again. They think they're good with God. They think they're safe. Uh, they think that all is well. But we're going to look at this over these next two weeks and really delve into it. Why did Jesus use this term, born again, to talk about what it means to become a Christian? In fact, we'll see that he says, you must be born again. Not that this is a good suggestion or, you know, you probably improve your life a bit in some way if you're born again, if you added this experience. He said, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of heaven. And the truth is that most people don't really see the, the problem that we have very clearly. Because we mostly feel like we're in fairly good shape. You know, we've, we're all kind of hoping our good outweighs our bad. And, and we don't really understand the depth of how God sees us. But one way that Jesus helps us to see the, the, the true and terrible diagnosis of what's going on inside of us is he shows us the kind of remedy that God had to provide to cure it, and that is namely the new birth. I'll give you an example. If you have a sore on your ankle and you went into the doctor and, and, and um, he did some tests and he comes back and he says, oh, I've got some really difficult news for you. We need to take you immediately into surgery and we're gonna have to amputate your leg right below the knee. Well, if he said that, then that tells you more about that sore on your ankle than a hundred fancy words might say. You start to see how serious it really, really is. Jesus says nothing but being totally reborn is gonna take care of the issue that we have, a whole new birth. So let's jump into it. We see it in chapter three. I'll start with verse one. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He had seen the miracles. Nicodemus is a powerful, moral, religious, good man. He's also a true seeker of God. A lot of the Pharisees were jealous of Jesus. They wanted him dead from the beginning because he was pulling followers away from them. But Nicodemus starts the conversation with a genuine compliment. We would expect in polite 
conversation that Jesus would probably respond. I would have said, like, thanks, Nick. That means a lot coming from a guy like you. But no such reply comes. Jesus makes no mention of Nicodemus' VIP status, his good intentions, his academic credentials, not because he doesn't have them, not because they don't exist, but because in Jesus' algorithm, they just don't matter. No small talk at all from Jesus. Instead, Jesus looks Nicodemus right in the eyes and issues this proclamation. Jesus responded and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And here we have the great divide of scripture, the line of sand, if you will, of faith, the line in the sand. Nicodemus stands on one side, Jesus on the other, and Jesus doesn't pull any punches. Nicodemus stands on the side of good efforts, sincere gestures, hard work, give your best to God, take care of, uh, try to do your best with your fellow man and, and, and God will be okay with you. Jesus' response to that, uh-uh, your best won't do. Your works won't work. Your finest efforts don't mean squat. Unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus hesitates on behalf of all of us, I would think. And so he goes on, verse four, Nicodemus said to him, how can a person be born when he's old? He cannot enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? He's saying, Jesus, uh, is this in jest? Are you kidding? Put life in reverse, you know, rewind the tape, start all over. It's not possible. We can't be born again. But oh, who of us wouldn't want to be? You know, our lives littered with broken promises and broken hearts and all the things that we've dealt with, missed opportunities that bob in our wake. Uh, a mulligan would be nice, I think, but who can pull it off? Jesus, you're kidding, right? But Jesus doesn't crack a smile. In fact, he doubles down in verse five. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh. That which has been born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Born of water and the spirit. Now, Nicodemus knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Jesus didn't have to explain it to him, but we need it explained to us today because see, Nicodemus, he probably had massive sections of the Old Testament memorized. He was an Old Testament scholar. He was a teacher of the Jewish people. He was one of the premier teachers in all of Israel. And he knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And when Jesus said water and spirit, he knew exactly what he was talking about. He was talking right back to Ezekiel chapter 36. Because in Ezekiel chapter 36, there, there's a principle that's bound up in one of the most marvelous verses of the Old Testament, which describes God's saving work. Here's how 
salvation works. Let me just read it to you. In Ezekiel 36, starting with verse 25, he says, this is God speaking. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statutes and are careful to follow my ordinances. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Notice all the I wills. I will wash you. There's the water. I will cleanse you. I will put a new heart in you. I will remove your cold heart from you. I will put my spirit in you. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Who will? God. There it is, the water and the spirit. The water and the spirit is simply a reference to the saving work of God. And he does it by his own will in the heart of a person. And then because of what God has already done, it goes on. It says, then you will, because I've done this in you, you will obey me. You will be careful to follow my ordinances. You will be my people and I will be your God. That's the water and the spirit. Salvation is an act of God by grace. He does independent of us, of any action on the part of us. We need a complete spiritual rebirth. We need to be washed. We need to be transformed. We need to have our heart replaced with a new heart and our spirit replaced with a new spirit. We need God's Holy Spirit inside of us so that we can follow him and obey him. And that's not something that we can do because we're flesh, and all that flesh can produce is flesh. The spirit produces spirit. Jesus was explaining that. This is really a denunciation of all religious effort. All religious effort apart from the sovereign grace of God and the cross of Christ. See, it doesn't matter how religious we are. Nicodemus was so religious. He was such a good moral man. But Jesus says, don't be amazed, Nicodemus. Why would you be amazed? And then he goes on to explain it a little more. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it is coming from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who has been born of the spirit. There's a sense in which if you came to me and you asked me, how can I be born again? What can I do to be born again? The technical answer from the Bible is nothing. There's nothing that you can do. The wind blows wherever it pleases. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. You hear its sound and you, you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. It's not really under your control. Newborn hearts are born of heaven. You can't wish or earn or create one. The new birth, it's inconceivable. God handles the task from start to finish. Now, old Nick has no hook upon which to hang this 
at all in his whole way of thinking because he speaks a language of self-fix. I try to get better. I try to do more. I work really hard. But Jesus speaks. In fact, he introduces a whole different language. Not works born of men and women, but a work done by God, born again. Think about it. Birth, by definition, is a passive act, right? The unwombed child contributes really nothing to the delivery. Postpartum celebrations applaud the work of the mother. I mean, no one goes, well, way to go, little kid. You just did good on that, right? No, it's the mother that's the hero. I mean, the tyke just gets a pacifier. Mom deserves the gold. She exerts the effort. She pushes and agonizes and delivers. Max Cato said, when my niece bore her first child, she invited her brother and mother to stand in the delivery room. After witnessing hours of pushing, when the baby finally crowned, my nephew turned to his mom and said, I'm sorry for every time I talk back to you. The mother pays the price of the birth. She doesn't enlist the child's assistance or solicit his advice. Why would she? The baby can't even take a breath without umbilical help, much less navigate a path into a new life. And Jesus is saying, nor can we. It's God. It has to be from God. Who is the parent? We can tell by if you checking the strategically selected word again when Jesus uses the phrase born again. There's two words for again in the original Greek that the New Testament was written in. One is pollen, and pollen simply means a repetition of an act to redo what was done earlier again. Well, that makes sense, right? But that's not the word Jesus used. The other word is anothen. Anothen depicts a repeated action but requires the original source to repeat it. It means from a, above, from a higher place, things which come from heaven or God. The difference between the two terms is it's the difference between a, a, a painting by da Vinci and a painting by me. Imagine with me that we go to the Louvre in Paris and we go and we see, I remember the first time I saw the, the Mona Lisa, I thought it was like some giant painting. It's a tiny little painting and, and, and you have to try to, you know, it's blocked off. You can't get, but it's amazing. But imagine if I'm sitting there looking at it and you're with me and I tell you, I am so inspired by that. I am gonna redo the Mona Lisa. And I, suddenly I pull out a canvas and an easel and, 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 and paints. And, and right there in the Louvre, I start painting the Mona Lisa. Now, I am no Leonardo, okay? So when you get done, it, if, maybe it looks more, more like a Picasso, but you know, it really looks more like a fifth grader did it, right? And I, you wouldn't even recognize Mrs. Lisa, you know, if you were looking at my painting compared to that. And you would just look, but I kept my word again. That's pollen. I did it. I, I repeated what Leonardo da Vinci had done. But when Jesus uses the word anothen, that means that 
Da Vinci himself would have to come back. He would have to do it. He would have to do the Mona Lisa again. It would have to be done by the original source. See, there's no replicas. There's no second generation attempts. There's no well-meaning imitations. He who did it must do it again. The original creator recreates his creation. This thought, it just cold cocks Nicodemus. Again, think about it. How much effort on the part of the baby does it take to be born? What does the baby have to do? Nothing. The baby contributes nothing to its, his birth. Some of you are going like, okay, Mark, wait, I, I think I get it. The new birth, you're not born by your good works, right? Right. That's a big one. But you only got half. Did you get this? You are born again by somebody's works. Because that baby is born and somebody is doing a lot of work for that baby to be born. I watched all three of my children being born and someone in that room was doing a heck of a lot of work, me. No, it wasn't me, was it? Though I felt like, oh, I'm exhausted at the end. No, that was nothing, right? Laura, sweating in pain. I think we don't understand sometimes the implications of this metaphor Jesus used because we live in a time of hospitals and epidurals. By the way, if you're a young single male here and you don't know what epidural means, just turn to a woman near you and say, what's an epidural, okay? She'll tell you. But if you go back, you know, you don't have to even go back that far. Childbirth was excruciatingly painful. In fact, it was very costly. It cost the mother a lot. Sometimes, many times, it cost her life. If you go look at some of the old graveyards, you'll see a lot of the women, and, and they died in their 20s. Why? They died in childbirth. Giving birth to that child cost them everything. And that's what Jesus is saying. Now, there's... Two basic responses, I think, in this room to what Jesus says here. One is to kind of be put off by it, kind of threatened by it, you know? I mean, it feels threatening to some of us because it takes the new birth out of our control and makes us feel helpless. I mean, I don't, I don't want the wind to just blow where it wishes. I want to make a decision, and I want to control this. And don't tell me I'm utterly dependent upon God and his grace, but these people, it's, it's bad news. There's some control issues. They would prefer to hear a message confirming their own ultimate self-determination. But to others of us in this room, this is thrilling news because we've already discovered we're helpless. We're the desperate ones who know that we're utterly helpless, that we are hard and rebellious and resistant, and that if God leaves us to ourselves, we're hopeless. If God only nudges us a little bit, instead of giving us a whole new life, we will not see Christ or believe on him. You see, it doesn't do any good to nudge a corpse. You might get it to church, but that doesn't make it live. It just 
starts to stink after a while, you know? People say, that guy sitting in seat number five over there, he just stinks. Because that's what God says we are. John 3, 8 is really amazing news to us. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it's coming from and where it's going. So is everyone who's been born of the Spirit. That means there's hope for me. That means there's hope for you. It's not threatening to me that I have no power in myself to bring about the new birth. I already knew that. I've lived in this helplessness for many years. But it's thrilling to me to be told that God is free and sovereign in his grace because it means that in all my helplessness, all my deadness, all my rebellion, all my moral inability, all those years of sin, there are no hindrance to God giving me new birth, his omnipotent spirit when he wills to give me life through his crucified son. He blows where he wills, not where we deserve his blowing, not where we demand or control his blowing. His grace is free and his grace is sovereign and he doesn't depend on me for this work. So do you see what the good news is? The word gospel simply means good news. What is John's gospel? No matter how good you are, no matter how moral and religious you are, that's not enough. You must be born again. But it also means no matter how messed up you are, no matter how dysfunctional you are, no matter how broken you are, you can be born again. What an amazing God we have. Dick Hoyt passed away in 2021 at age 80 from heart failure. Team Hoyt consisted of a father-son squad, Dick and Rick. They raced. They raced a lot. In fact, 64 marathons, 206 triathlons, six triathlons at Ironman distance. Team Hoyt loved races, but only half of Team Hoyt could run. Dick the dad could, but Rick, his legs didn't work, nor his speech. At his birth in 1962, the umbilical cord came out. He came out with that wrapped around his neck. He had been starved of oxygen. Doctors gave no hope for his development. They said, you might as well put this baby in an institution. He will never function. It's not going to happen. You can give him over to an institution now, but Dick and his wife, Judy, disagreed with that prognosis. Rick couldn't talk, bathe, dress, feed himself, but he could think. They could tell that he was thinking, and they learned this primitive kind of sign language where he would simply have to make a little almost imperceptible nod of his head, and they began to understand that he was communicating with them, and then, lo and behold, along came our computer age and the, and the voice synthesizer, and he learned how to talk with that. He used that. And they knew he was bright. He went to public high school and graduated. He went to college and graduated. <clears throat> but Rick had this impossible dream. He told his dad, I have always 
dreamed of running. And a 5K came up, and it was in support of a friend of his who had been paralyzed in a swimming accident. And, and he said, Dad, can we run in that race, that five-mile race? Well, Dick wasn't a runner. In fact, he already had heart disease. And the thing was, he was a father. So he loaded his son in a three-wheeled wheelchair, and off they went. And Rick told his dad as they were running, when they got back, he said, when I'm running, I don't feel disabled. So they just kept on running. Young Rick Hoyt relied on his dad to do it all. Lift him, push him, pedal him, tow him. Other than a willing heart, he made no contribution to the effort. Rick depended entirely on the strength of his dad. That's what God wants us to do. I want you to meditate. I found some old footage of them. And it's not very clear, but I want you to meditate on this for the next several minutes, and then I'll come back. I want to pray over you, and we'll close, and we'll finish out what I'm trying to explain today, and we'll get on to next week. Take a look at this. Who taught the sun where to stand in the morning? And who taught the ocean you can only come this far? And who showed the moon where to hide till evening? Whose words alone can catch a falling star? This life within me cries 
Close your eyes with me. His wind is blowing where he wishes. If it touches you this morning, don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. It's his choice. It's his will. It's his love. We're going to see next week the price that he paid for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Well, Mark, what do I do? Just as the wind blows and you feel it and it's there and it comes across your life, you just step into it. Just step into it. You don't know how bad I've been. doesn't matter. It's not about you but I've been trying to be so good and so religious and it doesn't matter. It's not about you. You must be born again. Father, bring this home to us. I would ask that there wouldn't be a single person in this room or within the sound of my voice that misses this. I know that you have chosen to blow your wind across this place. Those watching at home, you're blowing. You're moving. Let us not take it for granted. It doesn't always happen. We won't feel it forever. But you have chosen in this moment, you have chosen to blow across our lives in this instant. And I pray that not a single one of us will reject that, that we would step into it 
And then you put that new heart in us. And you put that new spirit in us. And you put your Holy Spirit in us. And then and only then can we obey. And then and only then can we break those addictions. And then and only then can we see you and your power in our marriage, in our lives, in every part of us. Come kingdom of God upon us. Be done will of God over us and let us experience you. In Jesus' name, amen.